crucial information. Grab your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 1. We are in an incredible stretch of Paul's letter to the Colossian church, describing the greatness of Jesus, our King, our Savior. And we get to focus in on, on this rich, overwhelming passage, sort of the second half of it. And, and really, we're just continuing the theme of what we had last week, treasuring Christ as supreme. Last week, we saw that he was supreme over all things, like all of the cosmos. Every aspect of all of creation belongs to him. It's his. He is supreme over it all. This week, our focus is going to zero in not only on what he's done in creation, but, but what he has done with new creation, with, with this new day that is dawned in his arrival on this earth, in this Redemption that we see. So he is king over creation. He is king over redemption. He's king over us. Let's read verses 18 through 20 of Colossians chapter 1. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God, we come to this remarkable passage. These few words here are so overwhelming, so huge in the scope of us understanding Jesus, his person, his work. God, I pray that you would help us as we come to this passage. Help us to know him through faith, to adore him and to worship him, to rejoice in him, to cling to him as ultimate. God, would you do that work, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. There is nothing greater in all of creation, in heaven or on earth, in what is seen or unseen, than what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. There's nothing Greater, You could go to the edge of the cosmos and see stars and galaxies. And yet all of that would pale in comparison to what God has done for us in Christ. There's nothing bigger. There's nothing better. There's nothing with more value or worth. Therefore, there isn't anything greater for you to do with your life than to treasure What God has done for you through Christ. To treasure it. To treat it as if it truly is the most significant, overwhelming display and gift of grace. Problem is, we're human. And as such, we are a forgetful bunch Aren't we? Yes. Somebody was honest over here. We are forgetful. We're also easily distracted by shiny objects. Oh, look, squirrel. You know, like we are distracted. We are forgetful. We need constant reminder. 
And when we gather together on a Sunday morning and the songs that we're singing and the scripture that gets read and and leads us in prayer and the word that we come to, there isn't a Sunday that we can just say, oh, let's just do whatever. No, we need to be reminded again of this overwhelming treasure that we have in the person and work of Christ. Your soul and my soul are desperately sick. We need reminding. We need to remember and we need to, to, to be a people who go about reminding together. Because what God has done for us in Christ is so overwhelming. I don't want to stop treasuring Christ as supreme. I want to be a place where people can come weary. Souls are weary from the rat race of this world. Are trying to do right by God with, with trying to clean up their life on their own strength. They come in weary and we need to be reminded that God has done it for us in Christ. And he is sufficient. And so my hope this morning is just like last week and hopefully all the weeks that the Lord would have me here. To encourage us to treasure Christ. To treasure him as supreme. To cling tight to him. And so this morning I want us to consider in, these pas- in this passage, in these words. And we have a little direction here of what we can treasure. To treasure Christ as supreme in these three ways. To treasure Christ as supreme in who he is. To treasure Christ as supreme in what he does. And to treasure Christ as supreme And how he does it. Who he is. What he does. And how he does it. Our passage gives us those things this morning. So look at verse 18. Verse 18. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead. To treasure Christ as supreme. And who he is. There are two things I want us to consider. First, he is preeminent. He is preeminent. That in everything, being the head of the body of the church, being the beginning, being the firstborn from the dead, that those are culminating in this statement that in everything he might be preeminent. So number one, that he is preeminent. Number two, because he is preeminent or ultimate or supreme, because he is that, he is the life of the church. He is the life of the church. So let's consider this together. First, he is preeminent. First thing is this. Jesus is big. He is ultimate. And what we find in this incredible paragraph that you could spend the rest of your life digging into and understanding is that the first half, which we considered last week, verses 15 through 17, gives us this picture of pre-incarnate Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, perfect in Trinity, in eternity past, before there was creation, this, before he came to earth, putting on skin and bones, we get this big picture, Son of God, second person of the Trinity. Just to throw it right out at the gate, like he's huge. He's a lot bigger than you think. And you could have a very big view of Jesus, and he's a lot bigger than that. He's huge. And then verses 18 through 20, the ones that we're considering this morning, is speaking to how ultimate he is in his incarnation. Now coming, bursting into time and space, putting on skin and bones. So that both aspects of the paragraph, before 
his incarnation and because of his incarnation, no matter what, Jesus is over all. He's over all in the heavenlies, the things that we can't see. And he's over all in the skin and bone and dirt of reality, of what we can see. Well, heavenlies are reality. We just can't see them. But he's over it all. And this sort of big picture, Jesus is ultimate, is described here for us. How is he, how is he preeminent? Well, it's described in these three ways. First, he's the head of the church. Head of the church. It's a picture of authority. Jesus rules the church. The church is his. He directs it. Just like your head directs your body. He's the one that's in charge. It's also a picture of growth. Jesus is the source of life for the church. And it's a picture of unity. Jesus is the one who coordinates the body to function as one. He's the head. So he's over it, he's sourcing it, and he's coordinating it. It's his. The church is his. It's not a person. It's like a human being like me. It's not so-and-so's church. You know, you do that, right? What church do you go to? Well, I go to uh, Pastor so-and-so's church. It's not his church. It's Jesus' church. He's the head. Now, the beginning... The beginning is leaving no doubt about how supreme Jesus is. Paul places him, Jesus, in the prominent role of the new creation. It's sort of a parallel, if you will, to to what we understand in creation. So those words, he is the beginning, should trigger in you, oh, the first few words of the Bible. I'd say to you, the most controversial words of the Bible are the first five. In the beginning, God created if we believe those words, then we have to like, figure out what does this God want. If we don't believe those words, then we reject the rest. And so this idea that Jesus is the beginning brings us back to all the way to the beginning. And he is the beginning of what God's purposes would be in history, meaning redemption. He is the means of then redemption. So, in his incarnation, that is in Jesus, the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, taking on skin and bones and bursting into time and space and living on this floating rock that we all live on, putting himself under then the burden of the law, the law that he has given, like he did all of this. He begins the fulfillment of God's big picture work of restoration. He is the beginning. He begins the fulfillment of God's work of restoration. So this picture in this paragraph, this full paragraph tells us that Jesus is central in creation and Jesus is central in restoration. He is central to it all. I, I'm, I'm stressing this. I want to labor through this because I want us to not have a very small Jesus in our heads and our hearts. I want us to have a very big view of a very big Christ because he, he is worth all of it. He's worth your thoughts, your affections, your life. He's worth studying and knowing and loving and adoring and following and living for and making much of. Thirdly, he's the firstborn from the dead. So we had that expression, similar expression last week, firstborn of all creation. And I said, what he's not 
is that he's not created. It's actually a role of, of, of primacy, of kingship. If he's over it all, it's all his. It's just another emphasis of how much in charge Jesus is. Well, get this. This firstborn from the dead speaks to resurrection. That means that Jesus is, is king even over death. He defeated death. Death is a slain foe of Jesus. So his kingship is over cosmos and stars and suns and moons and space. His kingship is over time and reality. His kingship is over death. There isn't an aspect anywhere in which he is not king. His authority rules even over death. From the highest heights of heaven to the darkest despair of death. Jesus is king. This paragraph is telling you he's a big deal. From eternity past, before there was time, to eternity eons into the future, where the concept of time is be washed from our memories. And for everything that will be happening this Tuesday at 1.37 p.m., Jesus is king. In fact, I would encourage you right now, grab your smartphones, put an alert, a reminder in your phone on Tuesday at 1.37 p.m. Put in there, Jesus is king. Do it now. I'm serious. You have permission. Put it in there so that our church on Tuesday at 1.37 p.m., all our phones will buzz. And all of us, wherever we are in the Nashua region, our phones buzz and tell us Jesus is king. Eternity past, eternity future, and Tuesday at 1.37. You better remember. He's king. There's no escaping it. He entered into our world, into our humanity, to defeat our enemies, sin, death, Satan, so as to display his authority over everything. And like I said last week, when you take that in, the response is worship. It's the, I want to live for my king. I want to follow him. I want to trust him. He gives me no reason to not trust him. He defeated death. Now, that makes then Jesus the life of the church. Life of the party, sure, whatever. But no, he's the life of the church. All three images are teeming with life. Body on a head. Or head on a body. The beginning The resurrection, these are images that burst into your head. Images of life makes me think of the beginning of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. And without Him, not anything was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and darkness does not overcome it. He is the life of the church. Therefore, this is important. Without Christ, the church is lifeless. There are no headless horsemen churches running around, just dead ones with no Christ in them. 
We desperately need Christ. He is life to the church. And with life then comes power. If he is life, then life brings power and vitality. The church's power to be the church is not found in parroting principles borrowed from the world, but in proclaiming the one who rose from the dead. Name an obstacle in your life. Something that you just can't figure out. Every Christmas we bust out some thousand piece puzzle. And the object is during Christmas break, we're going to get that puzzle done. One time did we throw that puzzle away. It's an obstacle. Think of obstacles in your life. Any one of them. None of them, and they can be pretty severe, are more of an obstacle than death. Death is your greatest obstacle. What hope do you have in this life and at death? None unless your hope is Christ. And why? He defeated death. He defeated death. The church's power is found in the one who defeated death. Now, as a church, we are to live out the fact that Jesus is the life of the church. And that can be hard. It can be hard in the variety of contexts the church can find itself. One of the benefits, though, of living in a post-Christian context is that it cuts off the fat of cultural Christianity from the meat of the church. Now I'll explain what I just said. But I'll say it again. One of the benefits of a post-Christian context is that it cuts off the fat of cultural Christianity from the meat of the church. So what do I mean by post-Christian context? A post-Christian context is a cultural context, a, a climate in the culture in which we live where the Christian faith and practice has absolutely no voice at shaping the values, norms, and practices of that life within culture. There was an era in our nation's history in which the Christian faith had a voice at the table shaping culture. We've, we're not at the table anymore. It's just a reality. We're pushed to the margins. And one of the benefits of being pushed to the margins of a culture is that now you can't go about being an in-name only kind of Christian. There's no social value to just going through the motions of church anymore. Now, I don't want to disparage any realtor in here. I'm just using that as an example. 30 years ago, a realtor would go to a church, a big church, because it was good for business. There was a social value and just sort of like ebb and flow through life. Just going to church because that's just what you do and that's where you meet people. There's no social value to just simply hanging on at a church when the culture has pushed you to the margins and rejects everything that you say and believe. The benefit is we can get on making much of Christ and calling people to a life following him without having to buckle to the pressure of cultural acceptance. To have just going through the motions, people in church, 
causes the church to be bloated. Bloated. Nobody likes to feel bloated. <laughs> Get real personal at this moment. You go to Chipotle and they put too many beans in there, 2.30 or let's say 1.37 p.m. on Tuesday. You start to feel that. Oh, why did I do that? Nobody likes that feeling. There's a stretch in life in which we've done that. We've just sort of gone through the motions. Just feel bloated. If I just described you, my heart for you this morning is to wake up and see how incredible Jesus is and how incredible God has graciously poured out his love for you to rescue you from sin that was leading to your death that would be separation from God. And Jesus overcame that whole obstacle for you so that you could have life, not just so that you could sort of float and bloat your way through life, so that you could live for him in his glory because he is your life and you want to live for him. My heart for you this morning is to wake up to how great Jesus is and to live for him. And a church, to be a church teeming with life because it's so centered on the one who gives it life. So that we can go about engaging the culture around us and lovingly confronting the name onlys within us. And we can do that in two ways. We can do that with an unwavering humility to draw closer to people. Because we have the one who's given us life. So we can go into that with great confidence. Be unwavering to live out our faith. Unwavering in the face of a culture that just wants to push us to the edge of the margin. Unwavering and just, I don't know if I've ever really pressed in and got to know some of the other people in this church where they're at spiritually. I see them week in and week out for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. But I don't, I don't know if I've ever really had a conversation with them about Christ. Be unwavering, but also humble. Humble in that God has burst into your life and rescued you and wakened you up to his glories in the gospel. And then humble to see other people need to know Jesus too. And so you're unwavering and you're humble to draw closer to people, to engage people. And in your unwavering humility, you get after this. You, you make much of treasuring Christ with an eager authenticity to talk about Jesus as if he really is supreme. To talk about Jesus with other people in a living room, a coffee shop, sitting in these chairs in an hour from now. That doesn't mean I'm going to be going for an hour, but it's a point. To have an intentional and infectious freedom to talk about Jesus with other people. And I don't know what intentional and infectious would look like for you. For me, I probably will spit on you and I'm sorry. (laughs) But you might be more reserved, but just as infectious. But to be intentional and infectious at talking about Jesus, do you realize you have life? Talk with others as if you're alive. Jesus is the life of the church. And if you have Jesus, you have life. So let us live. Now, 
I say that, and some of you may have a pit in your stomach, a pit in your stomach because you feel a sense of guilt and shame that you've lived many of your years not doing that. You believe and you know, but you've put very little into place, into action. And so I want to say to you that Jesus isn't mad at you. He's not mad at you. He hasn't kicked you off the team. He forgives you and he loves you and he draws to you and he wants you to just start now. Just start now. In Christ, we are forgiven and we are restored. And he has grace and he has mercy for us. As we heard from Hebrews 4, for our time of need. And now is a time of need. He has grace and mercy for you. And you can start now living intentionally and infectiously, eagerly, with humility to talk about Jesus. Just start here in this, with the people in this room. And just get comfortable talking about him. He's your life. That leads us to the second thing, that we want to treasure Christ as supreme. Supreme in what he does. Supreme in what he does. He is supreme in who he is. He is the life of the church. And he is supreme in what he does. Look at verse 19. Oh, this is incredible. For in him, in Jesus... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. What is that telling us? This is amazing. This is what Jesus does. What does he do? He brings near the full presence of God. He brings near the full presence of of God, not some of God, not, it's not hologram Jesus. It's full presence, full presence, full presence of God. The incarnation, Jesus putting on skin and bones, begins God's purpose of restoration so that God and man can dwell together again. That's what Jesus does. Jesus brings near the full presence of God in order to undo what was broken in the fall. Adam and Eve had full presence of God, but they sinned. Sin burst into then our creation. We're born with it. We have it. You can't shake it. It is like tuberculosis. You're not getting rid of it. It's with you. You have it from day one. It all came about because of Genesis 3. Adam and Eve then were booted from the presence of God. And since then, sin has kept us far. But God came near in Christ to restore. That's what he does. He undoes what was broken in the fall. And this idea of pleased to dwell is drawing on some rich Old Testament imagery and promises. One in particular is Psalm 68. Psalm 68 is about God's king coming to restore the kingdom, to defeat the enemies, and to make a place where God would be pleased to dwell, namely a temple or a sanctuary. It was this image of God destroying laneways to all of the enemies of God's people 
and securing them, drawing them all back in, and then building a place, a temple, where God and man, this rescued people, would then be able to dwell. So this idea of a temple is a place of God's presence and his nearness with his people. And so everything that we find in there is is driving us to see that God cares deeply about rescuing his people so that he can dwell with them. I mean, that's where we see when you look and you turn to the book of Revelation. Now, there's a lot of it that's like, whew, that's crazy. What's going on here? And then everybody skips all the way down to the last two chapters where it's like, okay, yeah, I can get my head around this. And those two chapters talk about this restored creation where God and man dwell together. And guess what? There will be no more curse. Everything that has been a derivative of sin is no longer there. The ache that you wake up with in the morning and the death that we will all face will be no more. This is going to be incredible. Amazing. Jesus came to undo what was broken in the fall. This Psalm 68 is a poetic picture of a glorious promise of rescue and restoration from sin and its ugly consequences. It's about God establishing a temple. And so it tells us, and what we see in the person and work of Christ, a temple where the Lord God may be there with his people, it says in verse 18. It tells us then that Jesus is, I heard uh, one pastor put it this way. He, he just went through the entire Old Testament. and It was amazing, Tim Keller. And he said so many of these things, but particularly relevant to us is that Jesus is the true and greater temple where the presence of God and man dwelling together will be established forever. And that everything that you would think of and find in the Old Testament about the temple, everything that it represented, worship, holiness, splendor, relationship, fellowship, all of it is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so that for those who are in Christ through faith, you now, now, dwell with God. Safe, secure, not under condemnation, but as rescued and restored ones. This is amazing what Jesus does. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell so that man and God could dwell together again. And the nature of it, of what he does, I think we all need to hear this this morning, is deeply, affectionately relational. The Son of God did not put on skin and bones and come into time and space and walk this earth out of obligation or manipulation or coercion. Son of God came out of loving affection for his people. He was pleased to set aside glory for humanity so that sinful humans could be rescued and restored for glory. He was pleased to go to a cross, despising its shame, knowing that by it he would undo what was broken. He didn't do that 
because of some divine bureaucratical system telling him that's what he had to do. He did it out of his loving affection for his people. He was pleased. And therefore, that makes him the heart of the church. The heart of the church. If he is the life of the church, he is also the heart of the church. What Jesus has accomplished is to become the heart of the church. What beats and pulsates through the life of the church is a heart for Christ and who he is and what he has done. The heart is considered the source of the will. That is, out of the heart we live. So whatever rules the heart shows up in how we live, individually and also as a church. Individually, I hope and implore to you that Christ should be king of your heart. And so out of that, you would live for your king. Not perfectly, but that you would love and long to live for him. And the same can be said for the church. The heart of the church is to be the person and work of Christ in whom we find the fullness of God pleased to dwell. And that when we do that and we think, where have I also heard that? And we go back to John chapter 1 and we realize that in Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelled among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father. And what is he full of? He's full of grace and truth for us. Or verse 16 of John chapter 1. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. This means if Jesus rules the heart of a church and he rules with an overabundance of grace. Then the manner a church is the church is to be marked in the same way. An overabundance of grace. And what does this mean? Well, as a church, we need to intentionally set our affections on Christ as supreme. That is to be evident when we are gathering together. As a church, our belief is Christ. Our belief in Christ is to be sound, sure, biblical. We need to believe correctly, rightly. As a church, our community together It's to be marked with genuine affection for one another to help each other grow at treasuring Christ. To come alongside each other in the slog of life and remind one another, we have a great treasure to delight in. Be in each other's lives. Hospital rooms. To be in each other's lives. Living rooms when we feel broken. Be in each other's lives when jobs are lost, loved ones, health. To be in each other's lives when we are just simply down and struggling. To come along each other and to remind and encourage and just to be a means of mercy to people in need of mercy. That Christ is worth this as hard as it is. And that as a church, we would have a sacrificial commitment to seeing Jesus made known near and far. We would long to see more people in the greater Nashua area come to know Jesus. And that we would be sacrificial with our time, sacrificial with 
our abilities, our presence, our money, our dining room tables, that we would be sacrificial. We would want to see people come to know how great Jesus is. So we make our life available. Because at the heart of our church is the fullness of God and the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, we also find in our passage, not just the reasons to treasure him as supreme and who he is and, and, and then what he does, but in how he does it and how he does it. So how does he then bring near the fullness of God so that man and God can dwell together again? Look at verse 20. And through him and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. How does he do it? By rest- How does he go about restoring what was broken? He pays the price to reconcile us. He pays the price to reconcile us. So how does he do it? Well, he reconciles. See, Christ restores what has been thrown into disorder by sin. To reconcile something is to bring it back into order and good standing. And so Christ does that in his person and work. He brings what was thrown into disorder by sin back into order, back together. And the beginning of this work is accomplished in his incarnation, where his life, death, and resurrection secured our salvation. And the completion of this work will occur at his return when he says with a word, all things made new. And at the end, because of his reconciling work, peace will be full, it will be final, and it will be forever because of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and how sure Jesus has done it. Now, this doesn't mean everyone will be saved. It means that the entire cosmos will be restored. With the people of God brought back into that loving fellowship where God and man dwell together and the enemies of God vanquished. God will be undefeated. But Jesus reconciles. He brings back into order that which has been in disorder by sin. And he does that by making peace, by paying for the debt. See, there's a problem. There's a debt standing in the way. One so insurmountable that it required God to pay it. Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14, goes into the detail of how his blood paid the debt. If you looked over there, you find that he forgives us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He paid for it at the cross. This is incredible. God doesn't just simply wave away your debt like he's some empty politician promising to wave away your student debt. God doesn't do that. doesn't just make it go away, whatever that even means. I'm not being political, but I'm just being like a rational human being, whatever, you know. No, he doesn't just wave it away. Grace comes to you freely, but it came at a great cost. He paid it. He didn't wave it away. He paid for it. 
And do you want to know what the currency of this reconciliation was? The blood of Christ in your place. The death, he died, he died for you in your place because you could never pay for what that demanded. But he could. For all of redeemed humanity, he had so much resources in his blood that he could pay for all of redeemed humanity from all time. This is overwhelming. I'm sure you've seen those images of stacks of money, like a little stack of like a hundred ones next to a stack of a million ones next to a stack. You know, you've seen that image in your head just to give you a sense of how much it would take to have that much money. Like there's no way for us to create that image of how worth worthy and, and how resourceful, if you will, Jesus' blood for you is. Not just you, but untold number that can't be counted when you look at stars or grains in the sand. An untold number of people redeemed. Jesus paid for all of their sin. All. Not some, not most, not much. All. And in his life, death, and then resurrection, do you want to know something remarkable about this? His resurrection says to you and to me, paid in full. Account closed. There's nothing left for you to pay. He paid it all. He is limitless in his resources, he is purposeful in his promise. He is affectionate for his people. He is faithful to restore this place. So when he makes the payment in his life, death, resurrection, it is paid in full. In response to such news is faith and repentance to turn to him away from your sin, to turn to him believing that he is sufficient for you. This makes him then not just the life of the church and the heart of the church, but the hope of the church. The hope of the church. If he has done this and this is how he did it, then we have great hope no matter our circumstances. A few years back, a small indie movie came out that captured some attention with its story. The movie was about a priest wrestling with his ministry in a world that no longer wanted him around. There's certainly more to the story. I don't need to go into that. It's not really relevant. But what found in the movie was that there were deeply broken characters, some of them crying out for help, but not really taking it when it came. And most of them in this movie that he had to deal with didn't really see the point of the priest anymore. In a very heated moment, there was a fight. A line was said from a bartender to the priest. That has stayed with me. The pardender said to the priest, your time is gone and you don't even realize it. Cultural moment. Culture saying to what we have 
in the news of the gospel. Your time is gone. Our culture is currently saying this to the church, that our time is gone. But our hope doesn't ride on our social acceptance within the culture we live. Our hope rests in the one who created all things, sustains all things, and will one day restore all things. Our hope rests in a message that says this same one restores broken sinners by paying their debt. Even those who are saying, your time is gone, Jesus. We don't need you in our culture anymore. He still will save them. That's where our hope rests. Our hope rests in, in, in him for our worship as a church, for our work as a church, for our witness as a church. That's where our hope rests. So that when we go about treasuring Christ as supreme, we go about it with a tremendous amount of hope for each other in the world in which we live. That's truly remarkable what we find here described about Jesus. It's overwhelming, in fact. Here he is. He is your king. He is Lord. Here he is. He is over all. There isn't anywhere, any time, not under his reign and rule. He alone is worthy. So will you with your life adore him? Will you with your life praise him? Will you with your life bring him glory? Will you with your life say he is worthy? Will you do that? Will we be a church where that happens? Tuesday at 1.37 p.m. Sunday morning in 2024. Saturday in the spring of 2038. Are we going to be a place that continually says, he is Lord. Let us adore him. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would do that work in us. Help us to see just how incredible you are through the pages of your word. Help us to know that you are, you are, you are worthy. You are king. You are worth all this. May our hearts, may our heads, may our very lives live after you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.